Welcome to Enough Y'all, the Real Talk podcast for social justice academics doing the soul's work. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Case, a social psychologist, Appalachian academic, and clogger with the passion for truth-telling. In the show, I explore the intricate and tangled web of academic socialization and myths that do immense harm to not only our social justice efforts, but also to us as whole humans. What if you could fully embrace your talents, swipe left on fear, declutter your career, claim your enough, and curate the freedom for your most meaningful life? Enough with all the career misery, exhaustion, and burnout, academic brainwashing, internalized academic capitalism, and lack of compassion for ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find essays, resources, and hop on my community newsletter at drkimcase.com. For those social justice academics ready to transform their careers, my faculty development courses are also available on the website. Let's get into the show. All right, everybody, we have a special treat today. My uh, brother, but not real brother, (laughs) Dr. Chris Hakala serves as director of the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Scholarship and professor of psychology at Springfield College. Over the years, his research has focused on reading comprehension, teaching and learning, effective faculty development, and assessment. In addition, Chris has been invited to present at many conferences around the country, as well as dozens of colleges and universities on topics ranging from reading narrative texts to how to effectively manage large classes or how to engage students in ways that maximize student learning. Chris, could you tell us about your latest book? First off, Kim, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, to chat with you today. This is an interesting topic for me to discuss, so I'm really happy to be here. Uh, the latest book we have, I edited a book with Catherine Overson, myself, Lauren Cordowney, and Victor Benassi from the University of New Hampshire. And the book is kind of a follow-up to a 2014 book we did on applying the science of learning and education. This one uh, we call, in their own words, what scholars and teachers want you to know about why and how to apply the science of learning in your academic setting. And what we did was we drew from a variety of disciplines. We have some discipline-based educational researchers. We have some science of learning people. And tried to present a pretty comprehensive, it's 44 chapters, a pretty mm-hmm. comprehensive volume of the state, the current state of science of learning and how it is being utilized and how it is not being utilized in higher education to maximize learning. We're really excited about it. We think it's got a lot of potential for people to use in a variety of ways. And we drew, as I said, it's, it's published by the Society for Teaching and Psychology. And I would like to add, it is free and downloadable. It's a resource we wanted to put out there for folks. Chris, when Chris and I get together, things get a little bit, there's just, oh, there's a shiny thing over there. And then we start talking uh-huh. about all these different things. That may happen. I'm just going to tell you, but we are here to talk about in general the journey and the life and the career and all the bumps in the road that can happen when you are a faculty member who came from a working class background or identify mm-hmm. with a working class cultural background, which we both do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's just see how it goes. I mean, this is one of my favorite yeah. topics. And I know you and I've talked about this many times in person. We should have recorded yeah. it. I know. I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Back in 2017, I'll put this in the show notes too. Um, I wrote a little personal narrative kind of article about this, and that's the last time I've written anything on it, really. If you would like to share, and only what you want to share, your intersectional social location and pronouns. I am a cisgendered white male. I identify he, him pronouns. I am, as Kim has indicated, I come from a very modest working class environment. Um, I'll give more detail as time goes on, but I had a... Uh, relatively bumpy childhood uh, until the age of 10 or 11. And the academy had, when I entered it, felt foreign. 
and there are still parts of it today in 2023 after being a, a higher ed professional since 1995 that still feel like I'm an outsider. So yes. I, I'm really interested in talking about this because it is it is one of those topics that really, as you think about it and really carefully understand how you respond to certain things, you realize that it's coming from your past and the, the experiences you've had and, and how they shape your view of the world. People have heard me talk about all my social occasion stuff before, but I'll just be more specific with the social class stuff. The way I sort of describe myself is from a working class background, although now I can't claim that in terms of you know, where the Pew um, Foundation would place me probably, right? But some parts of my childhood, I would have been low income. Mm -hmm. But it was it's also that I never, never would say I grew up in poverty. I always mm -hmm. had food and shelter, even if that meant staying with relatives or something like that, right? So I never mm -hmm. had to go into like a foster system or mm -hmm. was homeless or anything like that. Food security and housing security. I don't want to claim any of those types of experiences for sure. Mm-hmm. But I was very unaware for a long time how much it was impacting my interactions in the in education systems and then higher education systems. So it's interesting. And then, okay, so what is social class? Let's kind of mm -hmm. complicate this a little bit. Do you want to mm -hmm. say anything about how you think about it? Like Social class, is, it's an interesting concept. And I, I recently read a book that tried to, I think, help me understand it a little bit more. It's not tied completely to socioeconomic status. They're right. two separate things. And social class in my mind, encapsulates, it does encapsulate income level to some degree, but it also encaps, encapsulates the, the the context in which you grew up in. You mentioned housing and food insecurity. It mentioned uh, some of the, the the ways that people, the, the circles people operate in, the, mm -hmm. the conversations they have with different groups, and the way that those groups impact you, uh, I think, both short and long term. Mm -hmm. I see it as a very multi-layered piece. And, and, and you were mentioning, I, I think about my hometown, you're mentioning that you never grew up in, in poverty. And I, there are times where I feel like I grew up in poverty, though we did have housing, living with relatives, and we did have food, although oftentimes, uh, especially in my younger years, we had, we had government issued food. So we had the government cheese. I still have a warm spot in my heart for spam. Totally. Yeah. Fried and, spam. And, yeah, fried spam. Yeah, absolutely. On, on, on Wonder Bread, it was fantastic. Yeah. I also recognize that as I was growing up, my, my, my mom, and she was a single mom for several years, fought to keep us protected from some of the issues that could have happened to us. I see social class being very multifaceted, and my mom was convinced that she wanted to move us through any social class barriers so that we were able to survive and thrive. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a complicated process, and I don't have a great definition for it. I just know it, it's more than just income. Yeah. It's got a lot more layers to it. There's someone out there that probably has a really good definition of it, like probably someone more in sociology or something like that. Yeah. You know, came to, I guess, in my 40s, decide or realize, I'm sure all this is very debatable, but I feel like it's pretty solid that this is a psychological state, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is which is where I end up having, I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to say I have trauma in the academy around social class, but where I have some pretty upsetting times mm -hmm. is about the psychology of being a working class person and the cultural ways of being and knowing and cultural ways of treating other people and cultural assumptions that mm -hmm. turns out don't pan out <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you're surrounded by middle and upper middle class people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know any of that. Right. Like I just thought, Oh, this is how, I mean, you just don't think when you're breathing oxygen that other people don't breathe oxygen. Right. And it becomes quite shocking when you realize, Oh, these people don't operate based on you give people what they need and that you do what you say you're going to do. And 
I do think most of the academy still defines, not in a technical way, but sometimes in a technical way, in a research way, class status as income. Mm-hmm. And we need to all wake up about that because that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. I mean, there are some people being more nuanced about it, but it's mm-hmm. it's pretty rare, I, I believe. And, and then not everyone listening to this podcast is in psych as a field, but psych is mm-hmm. very guilty of being like, well, this is just a demographic variable. And it's mm-hmm. so much more complex than yeah. that. I like your idea of thinking of it as a psychological variable because it really does, it acts as a lens through which mm-hmm. many experiences are filtered. And there are times in my career where people have said things and I have either overtly, which you know me, Kim, know that overt is more often the way I operate, Same. Or, or, or covertly <laughs> thought, what the hell are you talking about? Um, because yeah. I've been shocked by some of the things that people have said. And, and as I, I indicated at the start, I'm a, I'm a cisgendered white male, so I, I come with a lot of privilege, but the economic privilege is not one I came with. And so I was surprised to hear people say things that um, I heard, in particular, pretty early in my academic career when I was in graduate school and then when I first started teaching. How did your social class background impact your academic journey? I mean, this is a that's a big question. Do you mm-hmm. think it did impact your academic journey? Oh, 100%. So yeah. my academic journey is interesting. I was, I was considered to be a really good student in elementary school, yeah. um, a really good student in elementary school. They moved me pretty quickly through work and we had, and I had the big fracture in my childhood when my mom went through a divorce. My biological dad was a pretty uh, abusive guy. So we fled, actually, mm-hmm. and tried to, quote unquote, disappear for a little while. We mm-hmm. went across the country and lived in a different state for a while. And so it disrupted my educational experience. Joke with my children, although it's not really a joke. I never finished second grade. I left in about February. I never finished second grade. Oh, okay. Yeah. We just left. And then I started third grade in California where we were living. And they saw some academic experience in me they thought was good. So they moved me to this special third, fourth grade class where I realized I was actually, I was reasonably bright. I was able to handle things. But then we had some issues. We moved back and I got put into another class. And so between second and fifth grade, I bounced around a lot. Okay. Uh, and academics was a safe space for me mm-hmm. because I was good at it. Mm-hmm. And so I saw academics early on as being something that I could, I could leverage both my ability to talk and to be uh, gregarious as well as my ability to think through things as a way to, to sort of be okay because the yeah. social stuff was really hard for me at that point. I was the new kid in five schools in a two-year span. No kidding. And that's really difficult to be the new kid. And and add to that, I'm not particularly tall. I was chubby as a kid. It was it was the 80s. And, I, and this stuff happens differently that's now. That's all you have to say. It's so funny. Here's the 80s. 80s. It and was so, all bullying all the time. <laughs> it was all bullying all the time. So it was a different time. And so, oh, no. um, and then I got into high school and high school, you know, my, my mom met a guy, I got married and, and, and my social class and my economic class stabilized some. We still were pretty low mm-hmm. income, but we had a home that we were rebuilding mm-hmm. and, and I had two parents who were there to support me. I, and I, my mom married, can't ever go on anything like this. I was saying my mom was an amazing human being who did whatever she could to help us. And then mar- she married an equally amazing man. Oh, sweet. Um, my stepdad was was wonderful. And so they tried to do the best they could to raise us, but neither of them had been to college. And so their impression, my mom was a hairdresser and my my stepdad was, um, um, he was a machinist. So both of them were were very working class. We had a shop yeah. in the house, a beauty yeah. shop in the house. And my stepdad was, um, you know, he would go to work every day at seven o'clock, be home at 3.30 and all that. And so in high school, I became not as good a student because okay. I, I found that I could trade on being funny. And Ooh. so that's where I became, I like to, to make people laugh. I almost had to hide the fact that I was a good student. So despite the fact that I never did any homework, I finished 
you know, 20th in my class without doing a ton of work because I could do it and still be funny. Mm-hmm. And that, that was something that was interesting. There's a, there's a high school teacher I, I saw not that long ago. My wife laughed because she said, you became a 16-year-old boy when you saw this woman. But Mrs. Kudrin told me one time in class, she said, Hakala, I'm sick of you and your goddamn immature intellectual attitude. Get over yourself and start being who you are. And it stuck with me because I thought, okay, she's right. I could do better. So, so there's a lot of, of, of ins and outs. And in, in, in now the, the benefit was I lived in a town that was all pretty much working class. Okay. So I kind of fit in the town because we were all working class. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, that didn't we were, make you stand out in terms of school classmates. Yeah. We, we were a little bit lower in the, in the, in the town itself, but everyone was pretty compressed and pretty low class, which by the way, I didn't realize. So I did get the college. I thought uh-huh. we were kind of middle class. So I got the college and thought, oh, oh. Well, a lot of people, working class people, grow up thinking they're middle class. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it's big. It, I think there was a moment where the popular culture, well, honestly, the capitalism of it all was to try to convince working class people they were already middle class. Mm-hmm. And so that there's a benefit to that, right? Like don't don't try to do more. Stay where you're at. Comparisons are interesting. Not abusive, but alcoholic and sort of, you know, unstable and deadbeat dad. Mom was the one, right? This is a single mom situation. Mm -hmm. But I think the more I think back, I was escaping into academics, Mm -hmm. right? So that reward system of like, oh, you're good at this. Mm -hmm. And it was like the only thing I turned to. And it was just the, it was the reward system of that. Like, you know, adults telling you you're good at that, do more of that, but also getting in trouble constantly because I was talking too much and, and making a ruckus and being goofy, right. And like making people laugh and distracting oh, yeah. them from their work because oh. I finished my work. I can only imagine that Chris is, this is exactly what you did too. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> my desk was right beside the second grade teacher's desk. I got moved over there. Like, yes, I thought it was because the teacher liked me. No, no, no. I knew it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was a doofus. I knew it wasn't. And at the same time, my mom was really exceptional at being like, this is the key. You're good at this. This is the key. You won't have to struggle, right? You won't have to worry about if you pay the electric bill or pay the doctor's visit bill. You, you don't have you don't have to do that. So, you know, like go all in on this thing you're really good at. And that over time, I think, turned into and I didn't have that reaction in high school. It was more like. That's how you become isolated is you're the, you're the academically focused person. And then they're yeah, all like yeah. making fun of you because you're the person who's, I mean, I don't think I ever did this, but like reminding the teacher of the assignment they gave you, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. almost like that, you know? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And my, my sort of school context was we had some people that I think were in living in poverty. And then we had some rich kids mm-hmm. in, in there, or at least upper middle-class kids. They were sort of in control of the school system. I never feel, felt any sort of social fitting in. Mm-hmm. And so my only outlet for, for many escapes was just get your homework done and get it done well. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, escaping into books that weren't assigned and it mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't to even tell anyone I had read them. I was a big reader, yeah. but I didn't tell anybody I was a big reader. Right. Uh, I mean, I had stacks and stacks of books on my bedstand. I would read mm-hmm. at night. The other piece that is, is, it's interesting that you say this, that you're talking about the whole idea of, of escaping yeah. and being goofy. And one of the things that I learned fairly early after we landed, after moving around a bit, mm-hmm. was that my smarts and my funniness would, would, and it's what got me next to the teacher. But I will say my fourth grade teacher recognized that I was mm-hmm. a fidgety person. Mm-hmm. And and she did something for me that will forever stick out. And that is, she said, Chris, you're fidgety. Every hour on the hour, just get up quietly, do two laps around the classroom and sit back down. Don't say anything to anybody. Just every hour on the hour, get up and do it. And just calm down. You'll be fine. And so every hour for all of fourth grade, I got up, walked around, sat back down. It was incredibly helpful. Wow. For me. It was incredibly helpful for me just to learn to navigate. And and I think 
unbeknownst to her, she taught me to self-regulate my fidgetiness. Right. Um, some people, you know, find my, an outlet. Yeah, find an outlet. You know, I, I I've been really good over the years at doing this. I have lots of fidget toys, as many of us do. I mean, I'm and 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 Kim, you've been in my office. You know, I stand on a skateboard. <laughs> Because yes. it allows me to fidget while I'm standing, and I think that that is a is is a mark of someone who saw um, more in me than just the goofy kid. She didn't view it through a lens of bad behavior and problematic no. kid. It was more okay. This person needs an outlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A and compassionate think, response. And I think that that's and people I've talked to who have come through this working class world up mm-hmm. often had people along the way who recognized these things in a compassionate and almost an asset-based way versus Mm -hmm. a deficit-based way Mm -hmm. and helped people realize how that can serve them well. What Mm -hmm. she told me was, she says, listen, I know she says, as you get older, channel that into, you know, doing your work a little bit more. She said, you're, and I was a good student in fourth grade. She says, you're a good student now, but channel it. You could do so many cool things. So take that energy and see how you can find other outlets for it. And it was, it was really not only affirming of me because I always felt weird that I couldn't sit still, but also it was affirming to me to realize that, you know, I could, I could do some of this stuff. I, you know, I just pushed it aside a little bit in high school because I had, you know, I wanted to be part of a group. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I think about with this, and we now I think we should probably flip to like thinking about going to college, applying mm-hmm. to college, the kinds of places we saw ourselves being, being accessible to us, those kinds of things. So I guess the first question is, was it sort of automatic that you knew you would go or did you have to think about whether or not you would go? Were your parents priming you? You definitely should go. I went to a high school where not everybody went to college the way they do yeah, now. It, it, it might have been 50, 60 percent, but we had military. We had people going yeah. into trade school, that kind of stuff. Most and of so ours I, went to community college or military, honestly. Yeah. So the thought of me going to college was something that I considered at one point. I wasn't sure. I did have an 11th grade math teacher tell me hmm. that going to college was going to waste my parents' money. I shouldn't oh God. do it. Oh God. Um, but then as I got closer, I was working at Sears. And I remember thinking, and my parents were, you, you mentioned your parents, but my mom always wanted me to go to college because I was a good student. She said, you should yeah. go to college. Yeah. You know, you be the first one, you go. <laughs> I was thinking of going, but then Sears offered me a job. They were going to pay me $24,000 a year to sell lawn tractors. Uh-oh. And I thought, I, well, I'm just going to stay and sell lawn tractors. I can make $24,000 a year. And my mother said, that's fine. Just so you know, if you have a full-time job, it's $300 a week to live in my house. <laughs> I love her. And I started to do the math and thought, Ma, that's not going to work. She said, well, you can go, you can go to college then. She said, that's an She's option. She's like, huh, there's another option. That's so yeah. funny. So, so I, I did, and, but it was, it was, it was not a guarantee I was going to get in and it was not a guarantee of anything. So I applied to only one college and it had pretty much open admissions and I ended up going there yeah. and it was a great, it was a great experience. It was, it was, it was one of those things where I see these students now go through, my parents weren't going to take me to 10 colleges. I no, told them where I wanted that's expensive, to... dude. Yeah, they were going to do Even the college I went to was like four hours away. We drove there. I did a tour. We drove home. You know, that was you know what? I'm actually impressed because I would say that most working class students don't move anywhere to go. Yeah. I, I, if I'm being incredibly honest, I had picked up skiing my junior year of high school because I had a buddy who gave me some skis and he took me to a mountain. And so I went to college in Vermont near a place where I could ski and they had a deal. I know, on this, I see what your this, motivations were. <laughs> 100%. They had a $99 season pass to Pico in Killington. And so I wanted to go there and ski. And you know, I, it's not a working class hobby. So this not. friend with the giving you skis thing really changed a lot. It, it was a weird impact. Yeah. yeah. The college I went to was Castleton State College. It was a state college in Vermont. 
And it was, it was, it was an incredible experience. I, I don't know. I didn't know how to navigate it. When the kind of local, about an hour away from home, Southern Baptist, this, this all went downhill. <laughs> Southern Baptist, private, obviously, small liberal arts. I think they had maybe, in a good year, they had 2,000 students. Mm-hmm. When they came knocking and were like, we want to give you scholarships. But of course, that didn't cover living on campus and all the things, right? Even though yeah. they gave me like $40,000 in scholarships, that wasn't enough. But I didn't think, oh, you would become, you could be competitive at big name, high status universities around the country. Like that never dawned on me. Yeah, no one yeah. ever said, Kim, why aren't you applying to any of these Ivy League schools or really well-known state schools even, right? Or universities mm-hmm. in other places. There was no one there to like talk to me about that. And I don't yeah. think anybody that in my school would have known how to help me navigate that, to be honest with you. Yeah. Because I just don't think they had the skills for it. I was like, okay, I do this. And then I go there. You know, it's just not a good fit, Chris. <laughs> it's not a good fit when you're the person that's like, but what about, but that doesn't uh-huh. make sense. But that doesn't actually line up with this other thing that, you know, and then there was all this sexism about like rules for the women on campus, rules for mm-hmm. the men on campus. And I was like, I just can't, y'all. So I was only there a year. And then I end up transferring back to University of Tennessee, which is like 30 minutes from where I grew up with mm-hmm. no support and no scholarships. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't have had in, that. None of that should have happened. Right. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have paid a dime. I didn't know how to navigate college either. And I did the entire application process myself. Yes. My parents didn't know what to do. Family didn't have any way to contribute to help. No. And my my high school was not particularly helpful because I was not considered one of those students who was going to go off to a mm-hmm. slightly fancier school. And when I say slightly fancier, I'm talking about SUNY Stony Brook was like a right. super fancy school. Right. So I, I did all of that myself. And I only found out about Castleton State because they sent me a postcard. So it wasn't it wasn't like I was out there looking. So that whole process was foreign to me. And it gets worse when we get into college. And we can talk about that in a minute. But when I got to college, I was shocked and and stunned by many of the things I saw and learned that I didn't yeah. know anything about. Yeah. The application process, two things. My high school guidance counselor was responsible for sending in a scholarship application mm-hmm. and she didn't put in a postage on it and it came back. And her response to that was, and I spent months doing all of the community services requirements for this scholarship, yeah, yeah, like yeah. all this stuff. She was like, well, it's not like you were going to get it anyway. Ugh. And I was like, you know what? You shouldn't be in this job. Like, yeah, thank no you for screwing over the working class kid and not even mailing off their scholarship application. But the other thing is the FAFSA. And of course, yes, I had to fill all that out and navigate all that myself. But, you know, my mom made $21,000 my first year. Oh, you make too much money. You're not mm-hmm. Pell Grant eligible, which is probably still true. You have to be in such deep, deep poverty to be eligible for that. Oh, yeah. And so there was just there just wasn't support, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, my mom made if she made that, she was like doing a hairdressing. Yeah. It looked like my dad made a lot of money. Well, I say a lot, like $30,000 a year. Yeah. But my dad was paying you know, two thirds of his salary for child support to mm-hmm. his ex-wife. So although it, and so on paper, it looked like he was making more money than we actually had coming in. We were living yeah. in a house that was, that was falling down, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so I did get a little bit of money from the school, but it was a state school. So it was, it was reasonably inexpensive and, and, and yeah. manageable. I took out student loans, which, yes. which to the credit of the institution, they gave me what were at the time called national direct student loans, okay. which meant I canceled about $6,000 worth of student loans when I graduated because I worked in private colleges, which they considered to be return service. And so they allowed me to cancel some of those loans, mm-hmm. um, which was very helpful to me. 
the financial piece alone was scary. And it was scary for a number of reasons, one of which was my parents weren't particularly good with money. And so I never learned how to be particularly good with money myself no. early on in my life. And it took me years to navigate the process of being good with money. My parents, who were, again, I say wonderful people, they didn't save. So as I was dealing with some of the stuff I was dealing with, it, it felt like a really unfair playing deck when I got to college. And I realized that my roommate's parents gave him $1,000 to put in an account that would just sit there so that he didn't have to pay fees on the account. And then they put money in on top of the $1,000. I remember thinking, who's got an extra $1,000 laying around? Oh, yeah, they do. And and it turned yeah. out that, of course, my roommate's parents had a lot of money laying around. So it was, it was, a, yeah. it was a very heady experience for me. How do you think your social class background impacted the faculty part of your academic journey? I think it, I think it, it's hit me a variety of ways throughout my career. I started my career at a small, I have always worked in private. So that's actually been really interesting okay. because the private world is, is different than the public world. I've given talks in public institutions and it's often felt a little bit more like the environment I grew up in than, than the private world. First job was at a very affluent college and we had this thing called Friday afternoon social hour where the president and the provost would buy shrimp and wine and beer and we'd yes. sit around the faculty house and talk about issues of the day. And it was very bizarre to me because it felt, first off, incredibly extravagant and probably a waste of money. But second, it felt like, don't we have work to do? Why are we oh my hanging gosh. out? Like, I don't so feel you on this. Constantly analyzing like, how much did that cost? How much did that extravagant thing cost? And of course, it's our subjective uh, definition of extravagant. Why aren't we actually doing the work that helps the students and why are we sitting around constantly just, you know, listening to ourselves talk? And that's how I experience faculty meetings too. Oh, yeah. The inaction piece is really difficult often for working class faculty to handle. The constant, we're just talk about a thing and never actually do anything about it. It drives me insane. Oh, yeah. I have two things that I want to say about that. One is I had a faculty member at a previous institution who made the comment that teaching an overload was akin to being slave labor. Okay. And, and I had to stop him right there and say, listen. Yeah. I, and I asked him about his back and he had grown up, both parents had been faculty. Okay. So he had grown up in an environment where academic life was his world. I said, I said, have you ever worked a job outside of academia? He said, no, my parents thought that this was the only work for me. You know, you just don't know. I mean, I, and, and we haven't even gotten into it and we, we, we likely won't, but I worked, I worked jobs all through yeah. high school. I worked yep. through college. I built fences. I, I yeah. dug holes. I did all kinds of stuff. And so I was surprised by that. I was tenured at the time. So I was much more, uh, vocal about my feelings about what he said. But the, sec the, the second comment I want to make is that I sometimes say to faculty when I hear a lot of complaining about how much work they have, the idea that if you, if you just took the time that you spend complaining about the work and actually did the work during mm -hmm. that time, you'd be more productive. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a sense that of privilege that sometimes comes from folks in the academy that mm -hmm. is surprising to me. Now, that, that said, I, I have many wonderful friends in higher ed who understand the way that I grew up and they grew up similarly. But, and this, this might be a generational thing as much as anything else, Kim, but, but if my parents taught me anything, hard work was really a yeah. powerful message to me. That's right. My mom was, you know, my mom was cutting hair till seven yeah. o'clock at night. So at 10 years old, I'm making dinner. So when my mom gets out, we can have dinner. And my first job ever was driving the little old ladies to and from their appointments on Saturday mornings. And, <laughs> And all of these things, it was just, it was just part of it. And so working is just what, what, what I do. Yeah. And there are people that I come across in, in the academy who take a more leisurely approach to work. And it surprises me. It still surprises me even 30 years in. 
and it all works out for them in the end. I mean, my, my work was fast food. And then luckily, like for me, luckily it became retail. Well, high school, it started out being a lot of fast food places. And then my senior year, I got a retail job and I was like, oh my gosh, I've really made it. Cause yeah. I'm not having to come home smelling like grease mm-hmm. <laughs> and covered mm-hmm. in grease. Thank you, Hardy's. I never had to do really deep physical labors. Always recognize my family had to do that. My great grandfather was staining furniture his whole life. And then my uncle and cousins, they all did construction and painting and all those kinds of things. And my grandmother and her sister worked the Levi factory. And mm-hmm. my mom had more of a, uh, as a nurse, as an RN, had more of a, although there's a lot of physical labor involved in that, but yeah, more yeah. of a, I guess a stat, it's a status difference, even though it's a very difficult mm-hmm. job, right? Yeah. And that was later in my life that, that she did that. I've always just sort of been thankful. And I even sit, I'm at a computer going, I'm not out breathing in toxic pollution at a plant, mm-hmm. you know, breaking my back, digging holes like you, like you're talking about. And so oh, I'm yeah. always trying to keep that perspective, even though sitting at a desk all day or standing, you can have, you know, aches and pains. This is a cushy, <laughs> cushy situation. One of the interesting things was, and still is, it, it was, and I'll describe it when I was in college. When I was in college and I was building fences, I caught a lot of pushback from my colleagues who were full-time year-round fencers mm-hmm. that I was the college boy. And oh, they yeah. they enjoyed making me do the terrible jobs. I bet. But, <laughs> but I, I still have family who perceive me as the laziest member of the family because right. of my, my position. They, they say you just get everything without having to do a lot yeah. because their jobs are very different than mine. Yes. And so that tension has existed my yeah. entire professional life. And I think we've spoken about this. I don't use my title ever anywhere except in very specific situations because my family gives me a hard time. Of- you don't you don't refer to yourself as doctor, you're saying? Yeah, never. Even in contexts where it might be appropriate, mm. I don't feel comfortable using it because there's a chance my family might hear it. So for example, on my business cards, which I knew my family would ask for at some point, I purposely left off PhD and doctor because my family would give me a hard time about it. Chris. I I know. I know. Oh, yeah. We're talking before about the impact that this stuff has on you over the course of I your know. life. And this is the impact that it has. I'm almost embarrassed to have the degree around members of my family. So I don't ever talk about it. I don't talk about what I do. It's not oh, yeah. part of any conversations no. we ever have. No. So my family doesn't know I've ever published a book. I think I've published seven okay. books. They've never heard of it. Any of it. I don't know if my family knows what I do. I suspect they don't. Mm-hmm. And I definitely suspect the broader, you know, sort of working class community thinks I don't do work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's not, yeah. it's not a real job. It's yeah. not a real job. I remember one of my family members was, you know, in grad school. And I've heard other working class faculty say this, that when I went to grad school, she was like, you're still in college. Why can't you get it done? You know, I know. And I, I get know. that. That makes sense. What do academics get wrong about working class and, and low income faculty? Or we could just say working class faculty since we can't necessarily claim the other. What do they get wrong about it? What do they get wrong about us? Yeah. I mean, my first thought was going to be the idea that we might have come from maybe uh, an inferior educational experience. Uh I mean, I have had people cast us, not direct, but I went to two state institutions for my bachelor's and for my master's and PhD. And and I've had people say, well, Mm. okay, so I went to X, which is a private, well-known institution. And and there's, there's a little bit of that classism about institutions. Yes. There's also this idea that in higher ed, that we are, I don't know if it's above is the right word, but there's there's a hierarchy that we place ourselves in higher ed that I, I struggle with. So for example, on campus, I, I tend to be very open to people across campus. Yeah. And I know some colleagues of mine who, who aren't, a faculty member who I believe is engaging in an activity that, although not 
immoral feels incredibly elitist to me. When I talked to the faculty member about it, the faculty member said, well, I have the PhD, they don't, so I should get this. They see themselves in a particular way that I just don't. Yeah. I tend to spend a lot of time with staff. Yeah. It feels more like home. Mm-hmm. And at my previous university, I knew I knew so many people across that campus, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you do too, too, because I've been on your campus, and you can't walk anywhere without having an extra 30-minute cushion because so many people stop you. <laughs> so I do know a lot not, of people. It's not just faculty, and it's not just yeah. students. It's also yeah. staff. And, yeah. you know, I had a staff member tell me my last year there, she was like, you know, most faculty won't even talk to us. And I was like, what do you mean? I mean, I, you know, if I think about it, I mean, I did understand, but I was just kind of like taken aback. And she's like, oh, no, they don't want to talk to us. And they just sort of, you know demand things of us and then don't talk to us as humans. And I said, I said, you're my favorite people to talk to because I don't have to be on guard mm-hmm. in in a way that the Academy forces me to be on guard. Mm-hmm. Even though I try to work through sort of the socialization of the Academy that makes me feel like I should present in a certain way. Like that's not really what I mean. I mean on guard because I can't necessarily Always understand the nuances, the hidden curriculum, mm-hmm. decoded language, mm-hmm. the I'm saying something, but I'm not saying it. I don't have that decoder ring. I've talked about that in my article. Yeah. People don't just say what they're saying. And then it takes me a week. And then honestly, literally, I'll be walking around on the campus going, oh, that comment from last week, that may be what they meant. It'll just click. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. most of the time it doesn't ever click, Chris. So I never know what is going on. <laughs> I I know I know the coded language is is big and yeah. and it it hit me starting in college but there's always these terms that they throw around these acronyms and terms that that don't mean anything to me and and I have to spend lots of time figuring stuff out yeah. things that I think people come in knowing through their experience that's just one of those things that is challenging the other the other piece is and this is subtle but it's at least this is in my, within my academic world is I'm a pretty informal person and yeah. that doesn't always work in higher ed. Right. Same um, here. And that's been um, an issue I've had to I've had to navigate and code switch a little bit over time yeah. to try to be a little bit more taken seriously, because mm-hmm. I do believe that although in many ways my identity positions me in a way to be um, in the majority or, or in the privileged class, I still t- at times get marginalized because of certain things and yeah. certain things. And, and you know this about me, certain things I do with intention. Yeah. Uh, I dress the way I do with intention. Yeah, because, which is how well, because we're on a podcast. I'm I'm pretty informal. I'm pretty informal. I I am currently <laughs> wearing jeans, my Chuck Taylors, obviously, nice. and uh, I did put on a button down shirt today, but because it's the one that was clean, and I do it because it it, it sends a message to my to my folks that the, my my work is is critically important to me, and the rest mm-hmm. of it is, is is window dressing. But but I'm also aware that I am able to do that as an older white man. I do think that fit within the academy is really institutionally, contextually determined. Mm-hmm. So people have better experiences in some kinds of institutions versus others. And I think that's something that's important. There are some institutions that are much more open to people who are yeah. different positions than others. So I will say what you said before, and that is I really like being in the institution. I really like what I do. I love mm-hmm. working with students, Yeah, but it is, it is there are challenges. Do you think there is such a thing as working class values? It's it's interesting because the the hard work is the one thing that my parents spent a lot of time. Hard work and honesty were the things that my parents. But my parents were, you know, two people, and and it's 
it's hard to to generalize. I, I do know the town I live in now is is a different kind of town. It's a little bit more affluent than any place I've ever lived. And mm-hmm. uh, and parents want their kids to work hard and be honest too. So I, I mean, mm-hmm. I I don't know. I think it's it's an interesting question. I do think my parents were pretty militant about me being hardworking though. We got jobs yeah. the day we turned 16 and yep. we worked 30 hours a week. And sometimes it was before that. <laughs> well, my, my, my mom didn't want me to get working papers, but the day I turned 16, she shook my hand, said the Commonwealth of Massachusetts now deems you fit to work. Have a good night at work. And I was at Abdow's big boy washing dishes at <laughs> four o'clock that night on my birthday. Happy so birthday. Happy birthday, birthday. Washing dishes. And that was yeah. the Hardy's job. Yeah. 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 I do think there are. I mean, I don't have any data to prove it. You know, mm-hmm. it's more it's more just observation. So it's not what I would call solid science by any means. But but it, it falls under the ways of being and ways of knowing mm-hmm. sort of category for me. And the one of the ways, ways of being is you say what you mean. Like that's mm-hmm. the honest piece. You were talking about earlier. You kind of mentioned that you're open mm-hmm. and you're informal. There isn't a lot of leaning towards hiding who you are or keeping cards close to your chest if that's a phrase that people mm-hmm. still use well you don't have anything to hide you shouldn't have anything to hide so yeah. people ask you a question you answer it and you tell mm-hmm. them what you think you know and you tell them about yourself and you share stories about your life and it turns out those are those can be mistakes in the academy but what the academy in general as a culture gets wrong about working class faculty has to do with communication styles is a major one for me because mm-hmm. that's been one that has been a major pain point Mm-hmm. And me figuring out later, oh, this whole, all these decades, people have been interpreting what I was doing through a lens I didn't even know they had. And it was always, what? That's confusing. Why would you say that, you know, yep. back to me? Because sometimes there's a little bit of an elevated volume. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's talking with your hands, not sometimes, all the time. Sometimes there's cursing. Sometimes there's a there's a, a passion and emotion there that is really just a level set, but people see it as ramped up. And it actually may be tamped down, Mm -hmm. but people see it as amped up. So it's a Mm -hmm. real disconnect between what's happening for the working class faculty member who's communicating and then what they're being perceived as. Our last piece will be if you have advice for potential allies, working class academics. So our middle slash upper middle class and upper class sometimes Uh (laughs) academics uh who might want to be allies. It'd be nice if we had some more of those. Yeah, I I think that recognizing that there are, are differences with regard to the way that you enter the academy, being aware that sometimes your language can alienate people. It's, mm-hmm. it's similar to the way you want to be an ally to any other marginalized group. You want to be aware of some of the challenges and differences. And, and I think that a lot of times the messaging uh, makes it sound like you have to be more than, than X or Y. But in reality, be a, be a human who listens and, and pays attention and is aware of the person in front of them and identifies that person as a human who deserves the the rights and dignity of anyone else, sometimes that means hearing their response to things so that you know how to respond to them and not creating an environment where the where it creates embarrassment or like I had a faculty member once say to me, What do you mean you don't know how to do that? Everybody knows yeah. how to do that. And that's really it, it's shaming someone for not being in the club. Yes. And so I don't shame people for not being in a club. I invite people into the club, yeah. invite people into you, the group so people are aware. And for the working class academics, give yourself a break and, and know yeah. that there's stuff to navigate and be aware of your blind spots as best you can and, and try to come up to a place where you can find your comfort level and, yeah. and, and pay attention to those 
those those things that that ping you that make you feel a little bit awkward so that you're able to navigate them uh, effectively and, and and think about them and, and and try to understand them. I mean, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand why I get so frustrated at pretension. Yes. And and I I hate pretension. I hate it. And and part of it is because I can't be pretentious ever under any circumstances because I feel like it would come back at me. And so I you know be aware of that and know that that's it's how people are going to respond to things and be open and talk to people. I think one of the things I'm learning as I go through this, the, the time now is we're really being able to identify how to help marginalized groups is, is I'm not perfect by any stretch. And, and if I say something or something comes out that people feel uncomfortable with, I'd much rather have someone say in a kind way, listen, that's this. And, I'm, and, mm-hmm. and I'll listen and be responsive. So listeners, just as usual, Chris and I have spent we never have enough time. We always yeah, have more to talk about, but we are out of time. This may be the start of some, of some uh, a multi-episode topic that I can bring in some other working class academics. So there's just so much to cover, but yeah. I do appreciate you. I always have a blast with you. Honestly, I'm surprised we didn't just giggle through this whole thing. I know, so, right? We're good. Yeah, We're we good. actually, yeah, but you know what? That might've been better. Thank you so much for being with us. I hope our chats validate your experiences, inspire you to embrace self-compassion and give you hope for wellness and balance as you navigate your career as a social justice academic. As a reminder, you can find essays, resources, professional development options, and a link to join my community newsletter at drkimcase.com. Until next time, remember you are already enough. Mm